Thanks, thanks Ant and the elders for allowing me to speak to you today. I've got to tell you guys a story in our previous church where we were very happy and we weren't kicked out, we left voluntarily. But um, what, what, I was, we were on the setup team and um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of long life milk. It's fine for coffee, but I don't really like it for tea. So I, th- I came up with this brilliant, cunning plan. I said, how about when the setup team is on duty, they bring two liters of fresh milk, and then you use that until it's finished, and then you revert to long life milk. And everyone seemed to think that was a good idea. But what I didn't realize is what they heard me saying is, every Sunday, please bring two liters of milk for me to drink <laughs> tea and coffee. So the following week, someone brought two liters of milk, and I, I didn't drink any tea or coffee that, that Sunday. And I just remember being phoned the next day and said, hey, you caused a lot of offense. <laughs> you asked for this milk, and now you're not drinking any of it. So from then onwards, every Sunday, I would have at least 10, 15 cups of coffee. <laughs> and the thing I learned is if you've got a brilliant idea to suggest in a church context, try get your wife to suggest it rather in case there's backlash. <laughs> Wisdom. I love the story of, of David, the stories of David, because I think he's such an amazing character. But, but you know, I've got a theory, and I think that he might have been an illegitimate child, because when he talks about himself in the Psalms, he says, I was conceived in iniquity. And when, when Samuel comes to, you know, to, and asks his father Jesse for his sons, David gets left out in the field initially. He isn't included. And another time when he goes and meets his sons on the, I mean his brothers on the battlefield, they're quite sort of antagonistic towards him. And so, so maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but I think the one characteristic of David, which is a little bit of a negative one, is at times I don't think he was the best father. Because, you know, he had a lot of wives and concubines, and he, the Bible talks about 20 sons, and he had daughters, doesn't name the number. But it seemed like regardless of what his children did, there was seldom consequence. And it, and it had some negative connotations to that, as, as you'll see in this, the story of Absalom that I want to share today. So if you have a Bible, please turn to 2 Samuel 13. It's, it's, it's very long. I'm only going to read a couple of verses, but I just always love to start with, with reading Scripture. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to just read the first five verses or so. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, why, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So basically, I'll stop there. So basically, David's oldest son, doesn't sound, he's a terrible character by the looks of it. His name's Amnon. And he develops this very unhealthy infatuation with his half-sister Tamar. So much so that he becomes sick. And his cousin gives him this horrifically awful advice and that basically trick her into coming into your presence and then rape her. And that's what he does. So it's a horrible story. 
And what happens after this is that sort of infatuation that he had with her, that ungodly, horrible desire for his half-sister, it basically turns. And after he had committed that act, he has this absolute revulsion towards her. And what he does is he has her thrown out of his presence. And, um, you know, she, she's the virgin daughter of a king, and she's got the clothing that indicated this, and she tears it, and she's in absolute, absolute distress. And she goes to her full brother, Absalom, for, for refuge. And they obviously had a, a close relationship because he's got three sons and a daughter, and he calls his daughter Tamar, which is the same name as his sister. And what happens is Absalom is obviously incredibly upset by this, and the day that happens, he determines in his heart to kill Amnon for what he's done to his sister. When you say that to his sister, it's literally Amnon to his sister and Absalom to his sister. So it's a bit weird. <laughs> but what happens is he bides his time. And about two years later, he goes to David and he says, I'd like to arrange a lunch for my brothers. And when you read the scripture, which I encourage you to do, you can see that David's a little bit hesitant. I think he's, in, he's a little bit worried. And he, but then he agrees. He says, okay, you know, go for it. I won't come, but you, you go ahead and do this. And what Absalom does is he gives his servants an instruction. He says, when I give you a sign, go to Amnon and kill him. And that's what happens. He gives them a sign, they go up to the, his brother and they, they execute him. And his other brothers see this and they all panic, thinking, well, Absalom has called us here to kill all of us, you know, maybe to proclaim himself king or be the only son. So they all flee. And David gets word that Absalom has killed all his sons, but then he finds out actually it's, it's Amnon. But then what happens is Absalom goes into exile. So for three years he leaves and he goes to another city. But during this time, he has a cousin called Job who's the captain of David's armies. And Job intercedes on his behalf. Because the Bible also says that David missed, mourned Amnon's death, but it's almost like he missed Absalom's presence more. Absalom apparently was his favorite son. So Job goes to David and he basically intercedes and he asks for permission for Absalom to be able to come back into the city. And eventually David relents. He says, okay, you can come back into the city, but he's not allowed to come into my presence. So Absalom returns to the city, and for two years he dwells within the city without seeing David. And then what he, he goes back to Job, and he wants him to intervene again and get permission for him to be able to come into David's presence again. And Job doesn't seem keen this time to get involved, so he's ignoring um, Absalom. So what Absalom does is he sends his servants into Job's fields to burn them. You know, so don't mess with Absalom. And so then Job speaks to him and he goes and speaks to David and David eventually agrees to allow Absalom back into his presence. And there's this apparent reconciliation. But what, what then starts happening is Absalom goes on this big PR campaign. And the Bible says he was incredibly good looking and he had a lot of hair. It often talks about his hair. He had lots of hair. <laughs> you'll, get, you'll be very aware of that if you read the story. And he had perfect skin, it was without blemish, and he had an entourage. And what he would do is he would go and position himself at the city gate. So if someone came needing help from the king, Absalom would intervene on their behalf. So if someone came and had a problem with their neighbor or whatever it might be, Absalom would say, your problem? 
is now my problem. And you go and speak to David and you'd, you'd help these people and sort out their situations. And the Bible says he stole the hearts of men. So in other words, he became popular. You know, a people's person and accessible and helpful and he's obviously very charismatic. And so what he does is he does this for a time and eventually he gets to a point where he's got enough of a following that he's able to launch a rebellion against David. And his intent is to kill him and to replace him as king. And this rebellion takes David absolutely, completely and utterly by surprise and he literally has to flee for his life. But while he's fleeing, he has one, one concern and one prayer. And obviously, if you're in the courts of David at that time, you'd have to make a decision. You're for Absalom or you're for David. You, can't, you couldn't sit in, on the fence. You had to choose one or the other. And, and there's, there's a, man, a man by the name of, of Ahithophel. And the Bible says of this guy that he was an oracle of God. So that's the Bible telling you that he was an oracle of God. It wasn't him putting that on his webpage or... You know, he didn't go to a conference and announce that he was now the oracle of God. The Bible says this guy is an oracle of God. And I believe he was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And he chooses Absalom and not David. And David knows as he's fleeing that the difference between him living and dying is whether Absalom follows Ahithophel's advice or not. Because he knows that Ahithophel is going to tell him what to do. And if he does that, he's dead. So his prayer, his one prayer is, Lord, protect me from the wisdom of Ahithophel. And while he's contemplating this, while he's fleeing, there's another man who comes to him, a man by the name of Hushai, who was a friend of David's. And it's like, I think he comes and makes this dramatic announcement. He says, David, I've chosen to side with you. And David basically says to him, listen, but if you come with me, you're going to be a burden. So this guy obviously wasn't a soldier or anything. But he gives him an assignment. He says, okay, I've got a job for you. Become a double agent. Go back to the courts of Absalom. Make as if you are siding with Absalom and not me and do two things. Number one, be a spy and report back what Absalom's intent is. And number two, which is the important part, is whatever Ahithophel tells Absalom to do, you give him the exact opposite advice. And so that's what he does. He goes back. He says, listen, I'm, I'm for you, Absalom. And then Absalom holds this council of war. So he, he, he says to Ahithophel, Ahithophel, what's your advice? What should I do? And Ahithophel tells him this. He says, I will go today, tonight. Give me 12,000 men. I will go and find David, who's in disarray. Anyone with David will flee. I will hone in on him. I will kill him. And this thing will end tonight. He'll be the legitimate king. It's over. And everyone hears that and thinks that's good advice. They then ask Hushai, what, what, what's your opinion of what should happen? And he's just been with David. So he's thinking, yeah, I can see why this guy's called the oracle of God, because that's exactly what he should be doing. And if he does that, David is a dead man. So he gives the exact opposite advice. He plays on the fact that, you know, David's got these mighty men and he's done all these marvelous exploits in the past. And he says, yo, no, no, no. No, don't, don't rush in and, and act uh, haste, hastily. He says, rather bide your time. Go throughout the whole nation. Raise a colossal army. 
make sure they're well prepared and well armored and they can march and you know all this. He's just trying to buy time. He says, no, don't, don't do this. Rather, you know, go about this systematically and attack him when you're good and ready with enough men. And what happens is Absalom listens to his advice. And to cut a, a longer story short, when they eventually go and attack David, they're annihilated. David's ready for them with his mighty men. And, um, you know, he's given instruction that um, Absalom is not to be harmed, but Absalom flees, and his hair that's spoken about so much is caught in the branch of a tree, and he ends up dangling between, you know, in, in midair. He gets pulled off his donkey, and the man who, who, who helped him before, um, you know, the guy who had interceded and got him back into, into the city, disobeys David's advice, and while he's hanging there, he comes and stabs him and kills him. Okay? And what's also interesting is when Ahithophel hears that Absalom hasn't followed his advice, he knows then and there that that rebellion is over. So the Bible says he goes home, he puts his affairs in order, and he hangs himself. He doesn't even bother to wait for the outcome because he knew, it, knew what was going to happen. But you know, it, it, it's a tragic story, and, and the reality with Absalom is if you look at him, ironically, there's a lot of Christ-like characteristics of this guy, a lot of things that you compare between him and Jesus. I'll, I'll give you a few examples. The one is, like Jesus, he rode to his death on a donkey. Like Jesus, the Bible says that, that he hung on a tree. You know, and in fact, I think Jesus might have been crucified literally on a tree, because it always talks about him hanging on a tree. Like Jesus, he was a man of compassion, because Tamar had lots of brothers, but he seems to be the only one who took umbrage to the fact that she got raped. Like, like Jesus, he was an intercessor. He stood between the common man and the king, and he interceded on their behalf. Jesus is mentioned as a lamb without blemish. The Bible says he, his skin was without blemish. The Bible talks about all his hair. You know, often when the Bible talks about a person having a great deal of hair, it's a sign of the Holy Spirit upon that person. So whether that was the case with him, I don't know. But I think it talks about the potential of that being. He was charismatic, I believe Jesus was, was charismatic. He was betrayed by someone close to him. The man who had got him back into the city and into the country was the man who stabs him in the end. Like Jesus, while he was hanging on the tree, he was stabbed. Okay? And it, you know, obviously he, he did a lot of evil deeds, but I believe what the Bible is alluding to is this guy had potential to have been a great king had he gone about it legitimately. And if you look at this guy and you look at the man who actually does become king, this, the other son of David, Solomon, there's actually, in essence, I believe, one distinct difference between the two of them. And, and if you're in the first service, you can't say what it was. I mean, can you think of it? And I uh, pray for everyone, Craig. Yes, the attitude to wisdom. So when, when, when Solomon is elected, becomes king, and the Lord appears to him and says, what one thing would you like me to give you? Solomon says, Lord, I want wisdom. But when Absalom has the ability to hear from the oracle of God, he had this pure, unadulterated wisdom coming out of this man. He rejects it. And here's the irony. He could have done what Ahithophel told him, and he could have done what he wanted to do anyway. It wasn't one or the other. He could have said, okay, you go for it. Take 12,000 men, go tonight. And I'll tell you what, if it doesn't work out, I'll take an army in three months' time and do the same thing. But, it, but it's like he rejects this guy. And I believe that there's underlying reason for that that has an, uh, has an impact on us today. Because, you know, um, 
If you ever wonder why Solomon chose wisdom, it's no secret. Because if you read the psalm, Solomon talks about when he was the only one in the sight of his mother, his father would put him on his knee and, and just drill into him the importance of wisdom. Let's say, with, with your getting, get wisdom. Wisdom is the principal thing. If you read the beginning of, of Proverbs, over and over again, he's t- telling you how David, when he was a young boy on his father's knee, David would absolutely, you know, tell him time and time again of the importance of wisdom. And what he's telling you as well, I believe, is I wasn't the only child who received this advice from my father because he says, I was the only one in the sight of my mother, but by implication, I wasn't the only one in the sight of my father. In other words, my mom had me. I was her pride and joy, her cherub, her everything. But hey, dad had lots of kids. It wasn't just me. So I believe that that was advice that David gave all his children. I don't believe it was only Solomon. Yet it seems like Solomon was the only one who actually really listened. So what I think happened, I'll, give you, I'll just give you a little example to, to illustrate this. As we've got two kids, and when our son was about four, he, he had a little friend. And, I, and I, I remember this little kid. Because this little kid was absolutely besotted with his father. So, you know, he'd brush his hair the same way, and if his dad wore a red shirt, he'd wear a red shirt, and if he wore shorts, he'd wear shorts, and if he was eating chicken, he'd eat chicken, and if he was, you know, he just was a clone. Where his dad went, he went, and he would literally copy him all the time. All he wanted to do was be his dad, like his dad. And then his dad went on a two-week business trip to Russia. He left, um, I remember just telling his wife how much he loved them and the family, and when he got back after two weeks, he came back to announce to his wife that they were getting divorced. He'd met someone in Russia and they were getting married. And that, that relationship ended. It, but you know what the thing I remember about that little boy after that? Is he no longer wanted to be like his dad. He no longer brushed his hair the same way or wore the same clothes. And I just realized that little boy was so disappointed in his father's actions that it just changed his perception of him probably for the rest of his life. And I think what happened was, you know, Absalom, obviously, as I said before, had a close relationship with his sister, and he waits two years before he takes action against Amnon. And I believe the reason for that was he was waiting for his father to take action, and his father never did. And I believe that's where that seed of rebellion got planted in Absalom's heart. It caused him to do all those other things. And, you know, just, just... Reflecting on the story, I just felt the Lord was saying to me that there are people here who at times have felt like God has disappointed them in some way. I mean, I've actually, we've actually seen it happen so often during our Christian walk. I remember this wonderful friend of ours who was so strong in the things of God, so anointed, had a public ministry, and this person's father got cancer a man who who was also involved in ministry. And, you know, they'd seen so many people getting healed. And there was this belief and this, you know, God, you can heal him. God, you can make this right. You can save him. Remember, he died, you know, prematurely. But I just remember this this sense of disappointment that came on this friend of ours. I just remember it had such an impact on on their walk with the Lord. And it just changed them 
to the point where I just think they almost got to a point they didn't even believe in the existence of the Lord anymore. And I feel like when I was preparing for this, as the Lord is saying, some folk felt disappointed by him, that there were things he, they were believing for, there were things that they were expecting, and it didn't work out like they expected. And in essence, there was a seed of disappointment that was planted in their hearts. You know, um, there's this amazing story, which I know a lot of you might be familiar with. But there was a guy by the name of Horatio Stafford, beginning of the 1800s. And he was an affluent businessman. His wife and him had four daughters, 11, 9, 5, and 2. And they were friends. They lived in Chicago. They were friends with D.L. Moody, a famous evangelist who was going to England to minister. So as a family, they decided they would accompany him and aid him in his ministry. And he had to conclude some business. So his wife and four daughters took a ship, you know, um, sailed a week before him. And on the way, that ship hit another ship and sank. And his wife sent him a telegram from England saying, survived, dash, alone. All four of their daughters perished. But the amazing thing is, is a week later, he, he's, he's, he's taking passage. And he says to the captain of that ship, when we get to that location in the ocean where that ship sank, come and, come and tell me. And, and when that happened, at that point, he sits down and he writes a very, very well-known song called, It Is Well With My Soul. And if you listen to that song, it is one of the most beautiful, anointed Christian songs you'll ever hear. And it's basically saying, Lord, above all, you reign supreme. Yeah, and I just... No, it's, it, it's such a difficult thing, you know. I just know so many people who, I used the example earlier just because, like maybe someone who's experienced barrenness, who's had prophetic words about having children, who's fasted and believed and prayed, but never, never had the ability to have a child, or someone whose business failed or something that's happened. And there's that innate Disappointment, or that thought of Lord, it could have, you could have helped me, you could have made this thing right, but you never did. And then, when they're facing a situation where someone comes to the front and says, "We're believing for a child," you know, you're sitting there, and I mean, I know this. I'm not a woman, obviously, but I just felt this is the example the Lord was giving me. Is your inclination might be to say, "Lord, you you failed me in this. I don't have the faith to pray for that person," or that disappointment of. But I feel like the challenge from the Lord is you be the first person to get up and to go lay hands on that person and believe with them for a child. And friends, I just want to I just want to read another scripture and you know this I, I absolutely love this scripture, but it's in it, in one hand it's incredibly it's an incredibly difficult scripture, but in another hand it's it's so liberating. Just find it. I'm just going to read it. It's in, it's in the third book of Habakkuk. It says this. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. Friends, the Bible calls us to love God unconditionally. And I feel like if you're in a place of brokenness 
What the Lord is calling you to do is not to run away from him, but to run towards him and to come to a place of reconciliation. So if you go back to that story, I believe that Absalom was disappointed in his father and he rejected everything to do with him to the point of wanting to kill him. But when the man of wisdom comes up and gives him the advice that he needed to hear in that context, because his father had been the one that had drilled in the need for wisdom, I believe he recognized that guy as a man of wisdom and he, and he rejected him as a result. And I just feel, friends, that is something that we can do and it can be something that is subtle, but there can be an aspect of a relationship with God that through disappointment can die and as a result, it can lead us to a place of brokenness. And I feel like the Lord today, there's a few in that place, is calling you to a place of restoration. Yeah. And I just feel if, I mean, I'm subject to the elders, but I, Mr. in the blue shirt, what is your name? I just feel like the Lord really wants to minister to you today. I feel like there's different people who need ministry, but I feel like some people need to make Make, if you feel like anything I've said rings an element of truth in your heart, I really want to encourage you to, 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 to have that moment with the Lord and to make right. But I just really feel like the Lord, you in particular, the Lord wants to minister to you today. So with the elders' permission, I don't know, maybe you could, you could actually come to the front. If this word is, is something that the Lord is, is speaking to you on, I want you just to come to the front. We want to just get some people just to lay hands on you, just to pray with you. But I think, Craig, if you can maybe just pray for us firstly. Father, we thank you that above all, we need to be in right, healthy relationship with you. And Father, I pray if there's anything that's hindering us from that, because that's the principal thing, is to love you with all our hearts and all our souls. Lord, I pray that you'll identify that and you'll help us to see it. You help us to deal with it and to walk on wholeness with you.